This is the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley, and we're back after a short hiatus and raring to go. There's lots to discuss, um, so let's crack on. Why aren't the polls moving? Since a slight shift towards Labour after the general election, it seems like the polls are um, stubbornly static, despite the Conservatives' government's seeming implosion. We'll be discussing whether we think these numbers are real, and also what might be behind them if they are. We'll also be looking at Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May's poll ratings. How have they changed since the election? And what does that tell us about what might happen next? We'll make time for that word that shall not be named, Brexit. We might as well name it. What is public opinion on Brexit? Is it changing? Are the media right to think that people are turning against leaving the European Union? And if we have time, we'll find some time to... Uh, look at events across the pond. Leo hates me using that phrase, but we'll use it anyway um, to look at the Alabama senatorial race and uh, some of the uh, polling around that. Now, I'm joined on this week's show um, by Leo Barassi and Matt Singh to discuss some of these issues in more detail. Leo and Matt, welcome. Thank Hi, you. Karen. So let's, let's, let's crack on. So, I mean, one of the big questions that I, I, we haven't been uh, doing the podcast for a little while. So one of the questions that I keep uh, seeing people ask is about the voting intention polls. Now, we know that voting intention polling has had a bad rap, and I think that you know we can all say, look, we don't quite know 100% um, whether the numbers are right, we don't know when the next election is, and so on. But there is something interesting, which is that since the general election, when um, the Conservatives won by two points, there was a shift towards Labour. Labour will typically, not always, but typically be slightly ahead of the Conservatives in recent voting intention polls. But they haven't seemed to manage to make a significant breakthrough. Now, if we look at the political context of this, uh, given that the resignations from the cabinet of Preeti Patel, Boris Johnson's struggles, uh, and the sort of sexual assault and um, scandal that is sweeping Westminster, you might expect um, the opposition to be taking a significant lead. But they're not. Um, so, Matt, you've been doing some work on this. What do we think about this? Because I guess there's two, there's two questions, isn't there? One is, do we think this is right? I mean, for a start, but also, you know, if it is right, what's behind it? I mean, what's, what's your view on some of these issues? Well, as for whether it's right, um, that is the big question, but there certainly isn't any evidence uh, from any other source really to, to contradict what the polls are saying. I mean, if you look at the fundamentals, you look at the council by-election results, all of those things are pointing towards the parties having broadly similar um, levels of support, Labour maybe with a slight edge. Um, but obviously that, as you've, you've said, is, is an open question. As for what's going on and why um, they are not moving very much, there are a few things. So one thing that's been suggested a lot is that people are tuning out. Um, the main issue at the moment is Brexit. Uh, a lot of people, notably Matt Chorley, but plenty of others too, think Brexit is actually quite boring because there isn't a lot of new news most, most of the time. So is that causing people to pay less attention? Um, maybe, maybe not. People are generally not that tuned into politics most of the time, anyway. Um, although I, I understand possible. that, I think that that intuitively makes sense. But is there any particular evidence that people are uniquely tuned out at this stage? I'm not sure there is either. It's very, it? it's very hard to test. Um, I mean, if you look at the, I mean, the the, the weekly um, poll the populace does on the the most noticed. Um, news stories, I know uh, Leo's been looking at that a bit, um, there isn't any great evidence that any of the, the stories that are huge in the Westminster bubble are, are m you know, massively huge to the voters. That's the case most of the time away from um, elections and referendums. So um, that is, is kind of hard to test, um, but I don't think there's a lot of evidence either way on that. Um, there's some suggestion that... Um, 
despite the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has um, improved his ratings considerably and um, Theresa May's ratings have fallen considerably and, and, and the gap between those two has essentially gone. I think we'll talk about that a bit later, but I mean, essentially the... Um, the in terms of the leader ratings, there was a big move in the run-up to the election, but very little since then. Um, is perhaps the fact that not everyone has warned Jeremy Corbyn putting a ceiling above the Labour vote and under the Tory vote? I mean, we don't know. Um, but, I mean, people will start to say that more and more loudly if the polls continue to be as stable as they have been. And linked to that is then this question of electoral polarisation. Um in the sense that if you think in, in politics in terms of left, right, open, closed, we've now got, certainly on the issue of Brexit, which correlates very strongly with the open, closed, you've got the two main parties on both of those axes taking, um, well, OK, perhaps not in th- that much differentiation in terms of position on Brexit, but certainly in terms of where Remain and Leave voters have tended to gravitate to over the last year or so compared with where they were before, um, you basically end up with a rather polarised electorate, and when that happens, you don't have that many swing voters to move around. So that's a possibility too. Um, and finally, there's another thing um, to point to. It's um, I'm not actually sure when it was published, but um, I read this morning um, an article by Katie Balls in The Eye that was highlighting the importance of the economy. And it's important to remember, if you look back at historically, there haven't been many cases where a government has been voted out without either a recession or a major currency devaluation or an, an official currency devaluation. I was about I mean, to say, there was uh, a reasonably not, major one. Uh, w- w- yes, um, <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, in, in sort of, sure. um, that sort of thing, or something, you know, massive like a world war or something. So um, not to say it won't happen now, but perhaps that's uh, another reason for the lack of mm. uh, change. It's the economy stupid, as they say. I mean, Leah, what do you think about some of these issues? I mean, just to put some of these numbers uh, to that... Um, as I, as I mentioned, uh, Tories win by two points at the general election, uh, a win of sorts. Um, YouGov's most recent poll has um, Labour three points ahead. Uh, um, who have we got else? Oh, Ips- Ipsos Mori, sorry, have um, Labour two ahead. ICM have one out today, um, which is um, sort of Wednesday, what are we, the uh, 15th, um, where both part- the main parties are on 41 each. So... Narrow Labour lead, what do you think is behind it? Well, first, just reflecting on the numbers. In fact, if anything, you could make a case that the lead has narrowed over the last month compared with where it was immediately after the election. I think that might be a bit of a strong thing to say on the on the numbers we've got. But if anything, that's the direction it's going in. So on Matt's point, I think the floor ceiling argument is the one that I find the least persuasive. Um, you don't really have to go back much more than a year to find the Tories consistently below 35 points. Um, So the idea that Corbyn puts a floor for them at somewhere around 40 points, I think, is is empirically untrue. I think what 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 that is the the floor ceiling argument is reflecting and and Matt was was get was was getting at is the electoral polarization is there because the alternative parties have disappeared. But I find that argument fairly circular, that those parties have disappeared because the voters are going to Labour and the Tories. Mm. Um, I mean, you on on the, the two scales you mentioned, Matt, of the left, right, open, closed, well, if we were to have it more polarised, we have two alternative parties that would provide more polarisation there on the open, closed axis in the, in the Lib Dems as a more open party than Labour, and UKIP as a more closed party 
than the Tories. So I'm not convinced that you can explain the open the the um, the floor ceiling argument on the basis of the the uh, electorate being more polarised now because. The, there are alternatives for them to, to take advantage of that. I think the the two bits of it that persuade me more are connected to the sto- the attention that people are paying and the kind of stories that are getting attention. So Matt alluded to the, the populist numbers. Every week, populists show which stories uh, people could remember hearing. Uh, about 18% um, in the last week said that they could remember something connected to the Tory cabinet fallout. That's actually relatively high in comparison with most of them. The week before, only 2% could remember the Defence Secretary resigning. And the week before that, only 2 or 3% in a couple of weeks could um, spontaneously named universal credit. So these are stories that are very strong in the, the sort of political commentary space, but very weak in terms of people hearing about them. And then when you look at what those stories are, I think this is the missing piece of it, that uh, these are stories that are politically interesting, but they're not really things that are relevant to most people's day-to-day lives. And uh, even, unfortunately, universal credit and, and sexual assault are stories that are hugely, hugely important for many people, but probably in most cases not personal experiences of large enough shares of the electorate to directly uh, change things. Now, sexual assault, perhaps, i slightly row back on that, a personal experience is certainly a very large share of the electorate, but in terms of it being a political interest that is party political, mm-hmm. I think, is, is these, are, these are topics that are just not quite there yet, and where Labour has struggled, I think, is to turn them into something that resonates with people's day-to-day lives. I mean, I just add, add a couple of points. I mean, one of the things that um, I mean, I, I would echo, I, I would that has been suggested that I would echo is that until Brexit happens, you might not expect there to be a lot of churn because ultimately, if you're if you're a conservative, uh, passionate Leave supporter, is there much reason for you to desert the Conservatives in favour of Labour? I'm not I'm not 100 um, percent sure. And I was looking at some of the ICM numbers um, from today's poll because ICM split um, the cross breaks by. Conservative Lever, Conservative Remainer, Labour Lever, Labour Remainer. At the moment, the most passionate, um, sort of uh, likely to show up group of people are Conservative Leave voters. 80% of Conservative Leave voters say that they are 10 out of 10 absolutely certain to vote in a future general election versus 63% um, of the sort of sample overall. So they seem reasonably entrenched, not only that they're going to vote, but they're going to vote, um, they're going to vote Conservative in the future. So I guess maybe that, that is partly an explanation why the Conservative bloc, if you like, is robust and you know, maybe isn't falling away in the face of some of the challenges that the, um, the government is facing. But on the flip side... There are also reasons, I think, to suggest that maybe the Labour vote is somewhat underrepresented in polls. Not necessarily that the polls are wrong, um, but there's there's more there's more uh, room for them to climb, their numbers to climb. And if we look at the um, turnout figures, uh, for, again, to so ten out of ten certain to vote. One of the things that we see is that the um, by age, there's quite a, a significant gap still between um, the number that are ten out of ten certain to vote in the eighteen to twenty four age brackets in the forties, and those aged sixty five and over and seventy plus, where it's in the kind of seventies, eighties, nineties again. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I've, it seems to be the case in the polls, I'll bring you in, Matt, to see what you think. <laughs> For, uh, as we said, Matt is wearing the most gloriously sceptical face right now. Well, 
No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you then. One of the things that does seem to be happening in the polls is that they, they seem to have, there seems to be a big gap between young people voting and old people voting in polls that we would traditionally maybe expect, but doesn't really reflect what happened in the general election. And I suppose this comes down, the heart of this is, do we think that the uh, quote-unquote young people turnout has increased in the referendum for Jeremy Corbyn in the last general election? Will that continue or not? And that's the million-dollar question. But it seems to me that there is an argument that actually if there was a general election tomorrow, the government did fall. Labour's vote's got room to grow in a way the Conservatives doesn't. Well, I, I, would, I would firstly refute Leo's suggestion that I have, has had a sceptical face on there. Um, but uh, no, I mean, in terms of the, the relationship between age and stated likelihood to vote, this is always tricky. I mean, it's tricky the day before the election, but this, you know, at this point in the, in the Parliament is even trickier. Um, what I would say on, on the age versus turnout thing is that it looks as though young people are saying that they would vote in the sorts of proportions that they typically have done in the past, not the proportions they did in, in, in 2017. Um, and in a way, that's not surprising because a lot of them got very enthused about the election, about Jeremy Corbyn and then turned out to vote. That hasn't been the new flow. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been in the news so much recently so maybe there's less enthusiasm there but of course it might then come back so to your point it might come back um, when there's another election mm. um, I mean certainly the the uh, you, you can make the case that there is uh, space for Labour's vote to grow um, further uh, certainly if they manage to get the turnout up and sustainably up among those younger people. And, of course, there's if you think about the natural demographics, the age profile is so steep that uh, people become more Tory as they get older, but probably not as fast as they would need to to keep the, uh, the slope constant. So those are advantages for Labour. On the flip side for that, uh, the votes that Labour has gained are among people who don't normally vote, so obviously them not turning up is a, is, a, is a risk, but also the swing voters they've got, they've got the the more um, graduate professional types who are notoriously disloyal. They don't have the tribal loyalties of the older generation, so um, they're very remain, and you know that seems to correspond, even if it didn't cause, it certainly correlated with uh, the move this time. Whereas the voters that the Labour's lost, they've lost a lot of traditional, lifelong Labour voters um, in some of the more working-class areas, and that perhaps may be harder to, to get back. So um, there are certainly uh, risks in both directions for, yeah. for both parties at this stage, I think. I, I want to talk a bit about the leaders, um, because, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of been discussed about Theresa May's position, about Jeremy Corbyn's increasing popularity, which you touched upon earlier, Matt. And I just wanted to put some numbers to that for people that maybe aren't following the numbers too closely. So there's two ways of really looking at this, right? One is you um, ask people how favourable they are towards the candidates or how satisfied they are with their performance. So, um, so we'll focus on Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn here. And then another way you can look at things is to make people choose which of the two you'd prefer to be the Prime Minister. And there's a very subtle but interesting difference I want to get your, your opinions on, and I'll come to you, Leo, on this. So just to read out some numbers here. So um, I, think with, I think it was YouGov recently. Um, favourability ratings for Theresa May, 32 favourable, um, 55% unfavourable. Jeremy Corbyn, 38% favourable. Uh, 48% unfavourable. So Jeremy Corbyn, both in absolute terms, favourability, he leads May 38 to 32. 
and unfavorability. He, he's, he's less un, people are less unfavorable to him. Forty-eight unfavorable to Corbyn, fifty-five to Theresa May. Similar numbers with Ipsos Mori on satisfaction with their performance. So a different measure, but still rating the candidates individually. Theresa May satisfied with her performance, thirty-seven. Dissatisfied, fifty-three percent. With Corbyn, satisfied 42%, dissatisfied uh, 45%. So slightly different numbers, but the fundamental picture is that the net, uh, um, net satisfaction, net favourability, Corbyn leads May, and in terms of satisfaction itself, or favourability itself, Corbyn leads May as well. But this does not seem to tra- uh, sort of manifest itself in a horse race scenario, which is something that YouGov track, on who would be uh, people's preferred Prime Minister. On that measure, the most recent YouGov numbers has uh, Theresa May 34%, Jeremy Corbyn 31%, don't know or not sure, 35%. So a lead for Theresa May of three points. Now, it should be said she's hovered around a lead of two or three or neck and neck on this measure for a little while. And we should remember when she called the general election, she was 39 points ahead of Jeremy Corbyn on this measure. Only 15% backed him, 54% um, backed Theresa May. But Leo, there's an interesting seeming contradiction almost here. I don't know if you think it matters. Between, generally speaking, people seem to like or rate Jeremy Corbyn better as a party leader. But when forced to make that choice, it's not quite that straightforward. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. Uh, and, for, and actually, but let's also keep in mind in the context, there is almost certainly not going to be a Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn clash. So a lot of yep. this is uh, interesting because it affects how the polls are going rather than how an election would go. Um, so the first way is the I think the explanation for the difference between these numbers is actually relatively straightforward. And that is most people see the job of prime minister as a tough job that needs a tough person to do it. And it is not the same thing to say that, uh, for many voters, to say that they like a person, they're favourable to a person, even even that they're satisfied with the job that they're doing, and they think they would be a good Prime Minister. And this is, of course, always one of Labour's problems, that it is often seen as a party and as individual politicians as having the heart in the right place, but not up to making the tough decisions. And particularly if Brexit goes badly or and or the expected recession kicks in, then that the requirement of a prime minister to be able to make tough but difficult decisions will be increasingly important. And uh, it would perhaps matter more uh, that, uh, that May is seen as not particularly liked, but possibly seen as better at doing the job. But all of that said, I think you could still make the case that it's still all not all that important. I mean, when we were at the election, May was still quite a long way ahead of Corbyn in this question of best prime minister. Uh, it had narrowed, but she was still ahead. Um, and when you drill down, I think one, one of the questions that uh, I found most interesting and counterintuitive from one of the post-election polls from Ashcroft um, was... Only one in three Labour voters said that they voted Labour because they wanted Corbyn to be Prime Minister, while three in four Tory voters voted Tory because they wanted Theresa May to be Prime Minister, or they thought that their candidate was the best person to be Prime Minister. So interestingly, Corbyn as a person was not a particularly good mobiliser. That said, 
I wouldn't want to take away the fact that what he can do is unite quite disparate people with disparate objectives, particularly in terms of the EU and in terms of fiscal policy uh, within the Labour banner, uh, in a way that I suspect would be very difficult for anyone else at the moment. Mm -hmm. So even though he might be trailing on best prime minister, I'm not convinced that that proves that he is a liability for Labour. I, I think I would agree with that. And, you know, this is very different from what you and I have been saying um, maybe 18 months ago, I think because it was not, <laughs> the situation was different 18 months ago. I mean, if he's got essentially um, reasonably equal satisfaction ratings in terms of net, so a net of minus three, you know, favor his favorability ratings are no worse than the person he's running against. I just find it harder and harder to convince myself that he's some sort of electoral liability. You can argue counterfactually that, okay, Labour would be um, doing better under a different leader in theory, but who is that leader? We don't know who that is. It's all very hypothetical. I think the, the demonstrable evidence now is that, you know, he doesn't seem to be a drag on the Labour ticket. If anything, he's bringing new people into to vote Labour that weren't before. And I think particularly on his Brexit policy, which I know a lot of people upsets a lot of people in the Labour Party. I do think that actually going into that election, not opposing Brexit and not wanting a second referendum, probably helped Labour patch together a coalition of people that they might not otherwise have done so. But on that note, I want to move on to Brexit because one of the things that I've noticed is that there's been a lot of chatter in the media among commentators about this idea that Brexit's going extremely badly and therefore, you know, the tide is turning against it. And I think I'd agree with them in terms of what public opinion thinks. I'd agree with them on one point, maybe not the other. So if you do, if you poll the public on this, it's, you don't have to look very far to find agreement that Brexit's not going particularly badly. So ORB, for example, they're just one I picked out. Um, do you agree or disagree? I think the Prime Minister will get the right deal for Britain in the negotiations. 47% disagree, 26% agree. And then there are a whole host of... Um, of uh, numbers and various different question wordings that would suggest that the government is handling Brexit badly. Um, indeed, ORB themselves, 34% um, approve of the government's handling of Brexit, 66% disapprove. Uh, Theresa May of Ipsos Mori has done um, a good job at handling Brexit, 32%, bad job, 55%. There's a pretty consistent pattern that it isn't going well. But as part of the Polling Matters opinion series, which I recently revealed on um, politicalbetting.com, we've been looking at this question of a second referendum. And the reason, and we can talk about this in a moment, the reason I think this is an important question is I think that politically the only way that Brexit would genuinely be reversed is if there was another referendum, another vote on it. And the only reason I see that being a significant uh, thing that could happen is if probably the Labour Party proposes it based on public opinion being supportive of one. And when we track this question... Um, most recently this month, or just at the end of October, 38% wanted another referendum on Brexit, 51% uh, didn't, and 10% didn't know. And when we compare that to the previous year, go back to December uh, 2016, 33% then uh, said there should be another referendum, 52% um, said there shouldn't, and 15% didn't know. So what we've seen over the year, and those of you that are interested in this can read my blog on political betting about this for more detail, is basically there was a slight shift from don't know to uh, yes there should be in March, around March time. And, there was a, and in July there was a little bit of an uptick towards wanting a second referendum. But generally speaking, we've seen this sort of 35 to 38% wanting one and a majority not wanting one. And that's been consistent. There's no real sign of a sizable shift against that. For two reasons. A, because um, Brexiters don't want one. They're pretty full square behind there not being one. 
and B, around one in five Remainers, often Tory Remainers, also don't want one as well. And I don't see any evidence, despite all the chatter in the media, despite the obvious sense that the, the negotiations aren't going well, that opinion is really shifting on this. And, and secondly and finally, there's another five-point scale question that we ask. We've only asked it twice, once in July and once now, around uh, how peop- what people think about the EU itself. So we say, uh, I strongly feel the UK should be in the EU. I think the uh, UK should remain in the EU, but I don't feel that strongly about it. There's a neutral option. I think the UK should leave the EU, but don't feel that strongly about it. And then there's a, I strongly feel the UK should leave the EU. And if you package all that together, what you find is 35% in the, this, this month said, I strongly feel the UK should remain in the EU. 35% said, I strongly feel that the UK should leave it. And that was virtually identical to what we had in July. In July, 34% said, I strongly feel the UK should remain. 33% said, I strongly feel the UK should leave. And what that basically means is that as a country, we're broadly in thirds. It gets more complicated than that, but we are broadly in thirds of passionate remainers and leavers and then people in the middle. And there is just no evidence of there being a sizable shift against it that I can see. Yes, individual polls might think that, but you know, I, I think the media are getting this wrong. I mean, Matt, what do you think? I agree entirely. I mean, I, I, there, there is a sign of a move, not necessarily a big move, but a move from thinking that, uh, from people who thought that Brexit was the wrong thing to do, uh, sorry, to, from people who thought it was the right thing to do towards the wrong thing. It's not a big shift, but it has been a shift. But as you've made clear, and as those numbers indicate, that's not the same thing as thinking that it should be stopped or reversed or that there should be another referendum. I mean, in fact, if, if you look at the, the, um, those numbers, uh, if, if anything, the only real move in that is that people have shifted slightly from the middle out towards the two mm. um, strongly feel the UK should remain or strongly feel the UK should leave. It's sort of the strength of feeling has increased slightly. Um, people coming off the fence, there doesn't seem to be any appetite... Uh, or any increase in the appetite to stop Brexit, because as you say, leavers are solidly against another referendum. Uh, remainers mm. are there are enough remainers who either accept the result or don't want another referendum. And I think the underreported story here. I'll bring Leo in in a moment. I think the underreported story here, in my opinion, is that uh, for people that are passionately pro-remain to the point they want to reverse the referendum, it's actually a lot of Tory remainers that you're going to have to bring over to your side that to say yes, we want another vote. Um, you know, yes, we're happy to change the result. I could I could see how that might happen under a Labour government, maybe because you know perhaps a Labour government comes in, decides it wants another vote. Perhaps some Tory remainers go along with that. I just do not see how, under this current circumstance, you're going to get Conservative Remain voters shifting against their own party on this issue. Leo, what do you think? We were talking off air about this question of a second referendum and whether it's a, a good thing to poll. I mean, this, this question, to be fair, has got criticism online. Um, I mean, what do you think about this topic? I don't like this question because I think it packages together two things. I think it packages together support for remaining or leaving, and it also looks at whether people are enthusiastic about going through another uh, massive national vote. Um, And it seems to me that if we're interested in looking at um, looking at whether ultimately there is going to be support for a second referendum, um, we should think about the process of how it happened. And that would be, firstly, 
uh, a growing strength of support in polls showing that people think that Brexit was the wrong decision. Now, that's starting to tick up, but I don't think anywhere near enough to, to change the debate. But should that get to, I think, 60% would be the, the interesting threshold. Should we get to a point where 60% are regularly saying they think Brexit was the wrong decision? At that point, there is space in the public debate for there to be far more commentators saying it's possible to stop Brexit and here's the process of doing it. At that point, once that started becoming a thing, I think that's when you should expect to see movement in the second referendum question. I wouldn't expect to see it now. And by the way, I think there's a very good chance this will never happen. I'm not saying that this is likely, but I think that would be the process. Mm -hmm. So this isn't, for me, the question that we should be looking at now. I think it's the regret question that's more interesting first, because that then enables a a different conversation that isn't happening yet. Um, there would also need to be that con- question. There's lots of lots of contingent things, but I would start with regret. Because it feels like this discussion around Brexit is, is feeling uh, feeling a lot of the themes that we're talking about today. One, people zoning out, and two, maybe bubbles and things like that, of which you know, I'll fully admit to being signed up to. Um, you know, the, the media is there every day looking at this happen, looking at what the government's doing, seeing what a shambles it is. I think that objectively it has been a shambolic six weeks or so for the government. And probably thinking to themselves, how can this not be manifesting itself in a Labour poll lead and people turning against Brexit? But we've said at the beginning, actually, a lot of people just aren't really paying that much attention. So it might be that they haven't quite noticed yet. Uh, and then, you know, on, on, on Brexit and the polls itself, nothing's really happened of, of note. So why would things necessarily um, shift? I mean, let's move on to uh, America, because I think there's a lot of people that are interested in this. And I do want to, um, we will be doing an episode uh, before Christmas, uh, probably getting J.C. Buer back, but looking at the runners and riders uh, for 2020 and what's going on in 2018 and, um, and and that sort of thing. But those of you that don't follow America very closely w- um, may not be aware that there is something of a by-election of sorts in, in the US. It's not called that. It's called a special election for the uh, for one of the Senate seats in Alabama. Now, this is because of Jeff Sessions the, uh, becoming the Attorney General and therefore creating a vacancy in the Senate. Now, the Senate, obviously, very important um, part of the uh, legislature for... Uh, the US. Um, but Alabama, a very deep red state, meaning that it is uh, very, very conservative, very, very pro-Trump. And you'd normally expect the Republicans to win by 20, 25, 30 points in a, in a Senate race or uh, you know, a presidential election. But actually, the polls are pretty damn close. And the reason is the Republican candidate, Roy Moore, has been um, accused uh, of um, sexual misconduct against underage women. Um, many decades ago, it should be said, um, But several women have come out and there are leading Republican lawmakers such as Mitch McConnell, who leads the Republicans in the Senate, have said he should stand aside. And he's not going to do that. He's accusing Mitch McConnell of uh, being a sort of establishment stooge and saying he should stand aside after all. So he's so Roy Moore, the Republican candidate, um, is um, staying firm. And the polls right now, depending on which one you read, have anywhere from maybe a sort of four or five point Republican lead uh, to the Democrats uh, ahead. Now, the election itself is in December, so we don't necessarily know what's going to happen between now and then. But there's a poll question that we noticed that we thought was uh, worth mentioning. I'll read it out. and I want to get Leo and Matt's opinions. So the question is this. Given the allegations that have come out against Roy Moore, about Roy Moore's alleged sexual misconduct against four underage women, are you more or less likely to support him as a result of these allegations? 29% said more likely... 38% said less likely, 33% said no difference. Now, this caused quite a stir, Matt, because 
29% said they were more likely to vote for Roy Moore as a result of these allegations of um, sexual misconduct against minors. That sounds like a really stupid finding, doesn't it? What do you think? Well, my reaction the moment I saw this was that this is testing the more likely versus less likely question format to destruction. There are... I mean, there is no single right way to ask questions, and there aren't you know, that many wrong ways, but there's always a bit of debate in the polling community about what is the best way to approach a subject. And one problem that this question format, the more likely, less likely format proposes, is that people, it appears, do not answer that question. They answer the question of, are you likely or are you not likely to, in this case, vote for the candidate? Now, usually it's asked in the context of things that are perhaps less obvious. But in this, in this case, they have asked, essentially, is the fact that this candidate is alleged to have been a paedophile going to make you more likely or less likely to vote for him? And you have 29% of people saying it's more likely. Now, if that is not evidence for the fact that people are answering a different question... Um, I'm not sure what is. I mean, I think Leo's got some uh, other examples of questions with this genre. Yeah, yeah. This so uh, question, very similar question um, generated probably my f- favourite ever poll finding. This is from a Servation poll in 2012 that asked if regulated dealers supplied drugs that were guaranteed not to be contaminated, would you be more or less likely to take them? Now, among people who've never taken drugs. 32% say they would be less likely to take drugs that were guaranteed not to be contaminated. So about a third of people who've never taken drugs are currently a bit tempted to give them a try by the thought that the drugs they aren't buying might contain a bit of rat poison. So I sense the derision with this question. Really. <laughs> having it said has that, its limits, let's put it that Having way. said that, does that mean we can't learn anything from this from this sort of data? I mean, maybe if we almost treat it as though it's our, if, we, if we accept that it's possibly not answering the question that it suggests that it is, is there something that we can learn from this? I mean, I'm assuming that 29% of people that say they're more likely to support Roy Moore as a result of these allegations, if they were in the room, would say to you, these allegations are false, they are cooked up by a fake news media, uh, blah, 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 and therefore, as a result of this horrendous conspiracy against our guy, I'm more likely to vote for that person. Yeah, in fairness, actually, the wording of this question is slightly less bad than the, than the drugs one I said, because that, that could indeed be true, and, you know, clearly... Fox News are saying that uh, it's it's hyped up and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, sure, um, you you could say that. But I think, I mean, yeah, what you get from this is a sense of absolute passionate, steadfast, quite self conscious. Nothing you say could change my mind, and I am proud of that fact. Yeah, I mean, we we're talking about the UK um, being electorally polarized, but I, I think the US. Um, sort of tops the lot in on on that score. I mean, um, the fact that I mean, I think what these numbers are saying, as as you two have kind of said, is that a very substantial minority of people are prepared either to dismiss these allegations or uh, or to defend uh, one or against them because the polarization is such that no matter what they will. They will support him or will support the. And, and let's figure. be honest, we've seen that here as well, haven't we? Yes. We, haven't, we haven't necessarily seen this particular poll question or polling around individuals and their sexual misconduct and, and that sort of thing. But 
I, I've noticed mainly online, granted, but a tendency to you know if a can if a if a person wearing the right colour rosette is accused of something, they're much their side will defend them and accuse yeah. it of being a conspiracy and all the rest of it. So, and it does show you the le- the depths to which people will sink in a partisan or, or even something as situation. simple as quoting somebody's words back at them is now called smearing them. Mm. Uh, by I mean, uh, okay, not by many people, but I mean the fact is that there is polarisation and partisanship uh, out there to the extent that these sort of numbers are believable. Though, to be honest, I think, you know, without wanting to be uh, in any way congratulatory about the UK political culture, I don't think you would see these kind of figures um, of a public poll of a UK politician who's in a similar position. But bear in mind, though, that there are, because there are, I mean, the US is is an almost perfect two-party system. So you're either one side or the other. I mean, here there are third parties who, you know, most people have more than one party that they could, in theory, vote for if, if they... If one of the, you know, if their normal party put up a, a, you know, what they viewed as an unacceptable candidate, and this sure. this is a particularly specific part of America, which is very, very Republican and yes. very, very conservative. So it's not like public, it's not polling Americans generally; it's polling people in Alabama, who are, are very, very likely to be uh, sort of Republican supporters. Um, chaps, we'll leave it there. That's all we've got time for for this week's politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. Big thanks to Leo Brassi and Matt Singh for joining me uh, this week. We hope to do a few more episodes uh, between now and the end of the year. We will certainly will be looking at events in America uh, to see what's going on uh, there in more detail with our uh, friend J.C. Buer. And we'll also be trying to look at some other um, sort of specific topics around electoral reform and other things too. So do stay tuned in the coming weeks for more episodes. If you like what you hear, as I always say, please give us a rating on iTunes and other podcast apps. Hopefully a positive one helps drive us up the charts and win new listeners. We'd be very much appreciated. But for now, thanks for listening.